Welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we invite you to enjoy this message from God's Word. All right. And my name is Doug, and I am a member here at Seacoast Vineyard, and I'm part of the the preaching team here. And I have the honor not only to welcome you here this morning, but to welcome you into 2017. Everybody, we've had some people obviously been celebrating. Maybe, maybe they haven't stopped. Maybe (laughs) they've just continued the celebration on in the church this morning. I don't know. Uh, But did anyone? Did y'all see the the ball drop? People stayed up to do that. Yeah, yeah, not me, not me. I have small children. I don't sleep much as it is. So any opportunity I take, I take it. We, we, and, and the holidays, what is it with the holidays? The kids, like they, they're like, oh, we don't sleep anymore. We're up till midnight every night. So last night we, we, we let them stay up late and we managed to get them to sleep at about, you know, 10, 10, 15 or something like that. And so Sarah and I were asleep at about 10, 16, 10, 17. And it was celebratory. I, I was celebrating. I was I was glad for the rest. But when we talk about New Year's, right, it's, it's like you're leading into the New Year's. You're, you're looking, okay, what am I going to do this year? What are we going to do? What am I going to do different? Um, your business type person, you're looking at your, your, maybe your business goals for the year, uh, maybe personal development for the year. We're talking, everybody's talking about losing weight and getting in shape and all that kind of stuff, right? So th- this is what we've done. We, we have a... Uh, our calendar, and, and so this developed over the years, and so we've decided that as the year flips over, it's time for this kind of thing, and it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing, but it's just, it's just in the air, and it's what happening, what's happening, and it's what we do here at Seacoast as well. We, for the past few years, we have come together, and we've done a series together. All the small groups in the church, everybody attending, will do a series together to kick off the year, to set the tone for the year, to move in a certain direction. And this year, we are uh, uh, doing a series called Surprised by Hope. And I think it's so perfect because if there's anything that we need right now that the world needs right now is some more hope. And so I find it very, very appropriate for this season. And this is a a series by a man named N.T. Wright. He's a very popular uh, theologian and thought leader in the Christian community. And so this is going to be a little bit different from the ones we've done the, the past couple years. And I think we're going to find it very challenging. He's going to challenge us as to where our hope actually lies and what that means, what that hope actually means, and what our part in the kingdom is. What is our part in the kingdom of God and what does that mean to the world around us? So I think it's going to be a good challenge for us. But I think it's important before we go into something like that, before we take something like that on, that we have an understanding of who we are and whose we are. And not just a knowing in the brain because I read it in the Bible and it told me so, but a confidence in your heart and an experiential understanding of who it is that we belong to and who we are. There's a lot of popular uh, personality tests, giftings tests. They can tell us how we're wired. They can tell us how we relate to others. And they can tell us what we're good at. But really, at the core of those, they can't really tell us who we are. The only, 
Only love can tell us who we are. Only God can tell us who we are. And it takes love to explain that. And I have a, a quick video here that I want to I show that illustrates that. It's an interview with a man named Francois Clemens, who was part of the show, The Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So let's take a look at that if we can. Fred came to me and said, I have this idea. You could be a police officer. That kind of stopped me in my tracks. I grew up in the ghetto, and I did not have a positive opinion of police officers. Policemen were sicking dogs and water hoses on people. And I really had a hard time putting myself in that role. So I was not excited about being Officer Clemens at all. But there was one particular scene that Fred and I did where he had his feet resting in this plastic pool on a hot day. Oh, there's Officer Clemens. Hi, Officer Clemens. Come oh, in. Mr. Rogers, how are you? And he invited me to come over and to rest my feet in the water with him. Would you like to join me? Okay, sure. The icon, Fred Rogers, not only was showing my brown skin in the tub with his white skin as two friends, but as I was getting out of that tub, he was helping me dry my feet. There, that one's dry. Thank you. And so that scene touched me in a way that I, I was not prepared. Sometimes just a minute like this will really make a difference. I think he was making a very strong statement. That was his way. I still was not convinced that Officer Clemens could have a positive influence in the neighborhood and in the real world neighborhood, but I think I was proven wrong. You were on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood for a long time. Yeah. I discovered a friend for life. I'll never forget one day I was watching him film a session, and you know how at the end of the program he takes his sneakers off, he hangs up his sweater, and he says, you make every day a special day just by being you, and I like you just the way you are. I was looking at him when he was saying that, and he walks over to where I was standing, and I said, Fred, were you talking to me? And he said, yes, I have been talking to you for years, but you heard me today. It was like telling me I'm okay as a human being. That was one of the most meaningful experiences I'd ever had. I'm so proud of you, Francois. Oh, thank you, Fred. Do you have time to give a song to my friend? Yeah, and you have to realize this was in 1968-69. And this kind of thing just didn't happen. But Fred Rogers, over-the-top, extravagant love, demonstrated to another person, changed the way they felt about themselves as a human. And he gained a sense of who he was from that. See, and Jesus spends a lot of time communicating to the common people and to the leaders of Israel <clears throat> that they have forgotten who they are, but that God is fixing that. And we see this spelled out for us in one of the most popular parables uh, that Jesus tells. It's commonly known as the prodigal son, and it's found in Luke 15, 11 through 32. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a look at that verse. Father, I thank you for each person here. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts. You would prepare us to receive the word. You would prepare us to see what it is you're doing inside of us. And you would prepare us to be open to receive love.
Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, starting in verse 11. You got that? Yeah. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took the journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Something important to note here as we read this is the audience. In the beginning of chapter 15, it says, in, right in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he's got everybody really represented there. And it says, And he told him this parable. Jesus jumps on opportunities. He says, I've got all kinds here. I've got every type of person here. And I'm going to show them something about God that we don't yet know or that we've forgotten. So he starts off and he says, Father... Give me the share of my property that is coming to me. So right off the bat, he, he jumps in right off the bat to get the attention of the crowd. Um, and if you're wondering why, I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> a guy named Kenneth Bailey says this. Kenneth, Kenneth Bailey is a renowned New Testament scholar. He's a seminary professor. He's an author. He's a missionary. And he's a lecturer. And he spent 30 years in the Middle East. And he asked this question of people throughout the Middle East. He said, have you ever heard of a son requesting this of a father, that he give him his share of the property that's coming to him? And the answer is always an emphatic, no, it's impossible. It won't happen. And he says, well, what would happen if somebody did? He said, well, the father would beat the son. And he says, well, why? He says, because that would mean that the son wishes the father was dead. So immediately, right off the bat, people, the crowd is shocked. Pharisees are appalled at the break of tradition, so it's like, so he's, he's got them all right now, and, and we're ready to dive in a little bit deeper. And so he goes on. The son was probably no older than maybe 18. He was an unmarried, it appears. Uh, he had no experience in handling large sums of money, and he sets off for this far country. Of course, he squanders it because you don't know anything about money, and you got all this freedom all of a sudden you didn't have before, and you're partying, and... You know, all that stuff. <laughs> you know, it goes quickly. And the thing about this is, is, is this wasn't just something that was considered unwise in this, in, in this time and in this culture. It was actually considered evil. Squandering money was considered evil. So he's, he's, he's building a case against this son. With, you know, just two verses in, he's building this case against him. And then a famine hits. Uh, famines were not uncommon 
at this time in this, in this part of the world. And so people prepared for them the best they could. And so you see, at this point, he's built this case against this son. And the Pharisees who were judging him for eating with the sinners are, are maybe now and they're starting to think a little differently. They're like, I see where he's going with this. I, I see where he's going with this. He's condemning the sin of a wasteful lifestyle. Oh, and look at him. Now, now he's eating. Now he's longing to eat pods with pigs, which in their culture was horrific. And so now the Pharisees, are, are, they've got to be thinking, oh, there must be some sinners here. There must be some sinners here that really need to hear this about their wasteful lifestyles. And so this son in the story has descended to his lowest point. But, you know, why would anybody do this? Why would anybody end up in that situation? Well, do any of you know somebody, or maybe you were that person, that you launched off after high school, maybe you went to college, maybe you just went on your own to, to work, and just kind of blew up? You know, and you went to that friend, and you were like, hey, hey, we, dude, you are out of control. You need to get it together, because they just couldn't couldn't deal. And this is something that actually happened to, to my wife. I'm telling the story. She's not in here, so I get to talk about her. <clears throat> she, she, uh, she comes from a Christian home, a ministry family. And when she was 14, her father went through this transformation. Uh, he had been a hard man before, but he had this revelation of Father God's love, and it changed him. And he became this wonderful man. And she loved him. She actually wrote, um, who's, the teacher asked her to write, who's your most, uh, most influential person in your life? And she said, my dad. And she gave all these wonderful reasons, very detailed, when she was like 14 or 15 years old. But now she's 17, and she's going to go off to college. And they agree on a college um, in the upstate. And so she goes off to the far country of upstate South Carolina. And she gets there, and she arrives, and she, and she discovers some things. She discovers things like clubbing and dancing. And she loves it. And so she's there, and she's dancing to late in the night, and she's wearing herself out, but she's still getting her schoolwork done because she's so performance-oriented that she's not going to let that thing drop. And so she's killing herself. And then on top of that, she meets this guy and gets in this relationship, and this guy is abusive. And so now she's not only wearing herself out with this lifestyle, she's in an abusive relationship, and her parents do not like this guy. So she's in this situation. They, they, they hate this guy. Well, maybe not, that might be a little bit strong. Maybe like in the way where Jesus said, love your enemies. Maybe that's where they were. They were trying to love their enemies. But eventually, she gets so sick and run down that she gets mono. And she's, just, and she's at some people that they know. She's at their house staying with them and in bed. And then she remembers, my father's house was better than this. My father's house was good. I'm going home. She went home, and there was a celebration, and her parents were ecstatic. So this son, he comes to himself, gets resourceful, and he says, I will go back to my father because his servants eat better than I do, and I will sell myself back into him into slavery and be a servant to my father. But he remembered the goodness of his father's house. Now, this is where Jesus turns the tables on everything. Jesus is getting ready to bring hope in for the sinners and the tax collectors, right? This is the moment. So let's read on uh, in verse 20. You got verse 20? 
That's all right. I'll, I'll just read. But, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son, father forgive me I have sinned against you. And the the father doesn't even pay attention. He's so excited for the son to be home. That the, the sins are forgiven immediately. Just by him coming back. And not this exuberance that the father expresses over this um, probably protected the son. There's, there's a, a, a ceremony they call, uh, and this is my best Ori County, Kizaza. <laughs> it's probably much different from that. But what that ceremony does is the community gets around and they bring this person who is now a Gentile. And they take this large pot and they break it in front of him. And then they yell, you are cut off from your people. And so everybody listening to the story is expecting that that's what's coming next. Not just the Pharisees, not just the keepers of the law, but probably everybody is expecting that that's what's coming next. But see, Jesus threw him a curveball. So not only did this expressed love of the Father uh, um, save him from this ceremony, but he begins to restore him into who he is. And this is our first fill-in. The Father's love reminds us of who we are. Reminds us of who we are. And how does he do that? In, this, in the story, he, he says, bring the best robe. Well, the best robe belonged to the Father and was for special occasions. You can, so it's, it's the Master's robe reserved for special occasions. That's the best robe, right? So he puts the best robe on him. Think Joseph. Remember uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat? <laughs> right? That, that robe, that, that coat that he gave him showed favor. That Jacob was showing favor to Joseph among all the rest of his sons. And they put a ring on his finger. This ring was a signet ring. This ring said that he was part of the family with the authority to do business. He had the, carried the authority of the father, of the master, of the father. It's the same thing that happened to Joseph with Pharaoh. Well, Joseph had a dream that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of a famine. And Pharaoh said, well, I want you to oversee how we're going to navigate that. And I'm going to put you second in charge over the entire land. And he gives him a ring, a signet ring, to do the business. And then he puts shoes on his feet. Bring the sandals. Servants didn't wear shoes. He came back to be a servant to his father. But servants don't wear shoes. And the shoes are a symbol of, of ownership of the property. So they put, him, they put him on his feet. And likely these were also his father's shoes. The master's shoes. You think about that. The master putting shoes on the feet of the slave and elevating him into ownership. Later, later, we read in Romans where Paul uses, um, he, he shares a similar idea of bringing you back 
of bringing us back. In adoption, in Romans 8.15, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so we see it's sons. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. In this culture, it's always sons. See, in Roman culture, there was this, there was this uh, what was called the, the patria potestas. Patria potestas. Which was essentially the idea that the father had absolute control over his family. Basically, he owned them. He wasn't just the head of the household. He owned everything. And, but a father could adopt a slave into the family. They had this process of adoption. And this process was called vindicatio. And so maybe he built a relationship with a slave boy. Maybe the slave boy is good with horses. The dad likes horses or something. And so he takes a liking to the slave boy. And, or maybe he's good with business and his sons aren't good with business. And he's like, I got to have somebody that's good with business to pass this down to. So I'm going to adopt this slave and make him my son. And so what happens is he brings seven witnesses to the magistrate with the boy, and they complete this process. The witnesses are there to say, so if anybody asks, they can say, yes, indeed, he is his son. He is his son. And so because of this, this, um, here's, this, is, this is the interesting part here. Because of this patria potestas, the father could disown a son. Kind of like the ceremony we talked about a second ago, right? He, he, could, he could demote his son into slavery, or he could sell him to somebody else. He could do whatever he wanted to if he decided he didn't like him. But an adopted child, an adopted son, could not be disowned. Once a son was adopted, he's there forever. So what Paul is saying in a language where these people that are in Rome would understand is that God is bringing you in, and you're his forever. He will never let you go. It's impossible for him to let you go. And that's what the father did for the son. He received him back, restored him fully forever. So we've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. His love reminds us of who we are. So picking up in verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him when he came. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he's found. See, the older brother was strong. He was focused on work and earning his position. The problem was that he was seeking acknowledgement for the value of his service. God does not value you for your service, or even your talents. He values you for you. And this is the next villain. Father's love is a gift, not a reward. When we're focused on earning love and our own ability, we can be right in the middle 
of a religious community, a church, serving, doing all the things, and completely miss God's love for us. Doing all the right things and completely missing God's love for us. The thing that separates these two sons, see, was this, the, the younger son recognized his need. And he came acknowledging his weaknesses. He says, I have sinned against you. He acknowledged that everything was not all right. And he was okay doing it. Of course, he was forced to. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 11, says this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Francois Clemens, who we just heard from, wasn't some, just some guy that had a negative self-image because of racism that he went through. This was a, a Grammy-winning singer. He performed in 70 musicals and operas over his lifetime. And he founded the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. But he had a weakness. He didn't feel human. It was his weakness. So just because you're an able person doesn't mean... You're not a weak person. Maybe your weakness is a lack of trust, even for God, due to past hurts and past experiences. Or maybe your weakness is your strength in striving for acceptance, just like the older brother. Father's love is a gift, not a reward. Religious history is titled this parable, The Prodigal Son. Because prodigal means spending excessively, wastefully, lavishly, and extravagantly. And see, in this parable, there is a third son. This is the son telling the story. This is Jesus. And this is the son who has experienced the prodigal, excessive, extravagant love of the father. We've gotten it all wrong. We've been focused on the sin of the boy instead of the extravagance of the father who's laid down everything for us. And this son is revealing who it is that we belong to. In John 14, verses 8 and 9, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. And the third feeling is the father's prodigal love is available to you. Jesus makes it available to you. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. See, the ultimate destination is to the father. Derek Prince, charismatic uh, teacher from the 20th century, says that a destination, it has no meaning, a way has no meaning without a destination. If it doesn't get you to where you're going, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the way to the Father, which is our ultimate destination. If we know Jesus, we know the Father. So as we talk about, um, do I have a chip? Is that you, musician? Can I get a musician? So as we talk about change and hope and a new year, 
to think about this. Rich Nathan makes, makes a statement, um, if I can pull it up, that says that sin, we will never be aware enough of our sin. It will never be terrible enough for us to truly, deeply change. Always, always, it is a revelation of the Father that brings us to change. And if you, if you listen to any of these um, marketing, business-type gurus, you'll, you'll hear a lot of them say that we want to make changes in our business, you want to make changes in your family, if you want to make changes. A lot of those changes start first, you change. The actions and the operation of the business, they tell leaders that if you want the culture of your business to change, you change. And so if we want the world around us to change, if we want Myrtle Beach to change, if we want the country to change, then we need to change. And he's made it so easy because he's come to us. I just want to take a minute and just close our eyes. And what I would like to do is just ask the Father say Lord what is it that's keeping me from experiencing more of you do I really understand who I am do I really understand who you are Father, I pray for each one of these people that we would not only have a mental ascent, but that we would experience your love. We would experience your person and who you are in a deep, deep way. God bless these individuals. Thanks for listening to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. You can learn more about us and access a video archive of our messages by visiting seacoastvineyard.com. If you feel led to support us financially through a one-time or recurring gift, please click on the Give tab at our website or download the PushPay app on your smartphone and search for Seacoast Vineyard Church.